0: Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. I have a very special guest today, the Chief Architect of Aadhaar, Dr. Pramod Verma. In this conversation, I try to understand the mind of an architect, particularly when designing human-scale systems. He also shares tips on how to become a better architect by focusing on some key basics. Listen on. Welcome to the Software People Stories, Pramod. I've been waiting to talk to you and then understand what is Pramodharma as a person and how your own evolution has been in terms of creating these scalable systems. And in one of the references, I noticed that you're called as the scalesman. So normally we start with the self-introduction as to how you got into IT and also your background, whatever else you want to share. And we can take the conversation further from there.
2: Okay. Yeah. Well, no pl- Pleasure to be here. And Absolutely. Happy to share the journey and happy to share the learning. I'm still a hands-on person, so I can totally understand what life of a software engineer turning into technology, tech leads, and then later architects, and then probably even technology entrepreneurs and businessmen. (laughs) You know, they all, you morph yourself into all these things, right? Uh, Yeah, happy to share. So let me start. I born in a small... Town in Kerala, grew up there, didn't even know, didn't even hear about IIT and all that thing when I came out and all in uh, Malayalam medium as well. It's not even English medium. So I, I, Mm -hmm. I didn't even study English medium. So it was a little bit hard in the early days to be able to understand what you want to do. You realize that you have a capability, you have aspiration but you are in a context where everyone around you is just doing small things around you and small villages or town. that's what happens. And uh, mm-hmm. there's nothing much going on. <laughs> so uh, yeah. sometimes it gets tricky. And then uh, so I broke away, I went into my master's and did my applied mathematics. And then I wrote GATE and did M-Tech computer science. But I think the, my programming started, my first experience of programming actually, frankly, was in high school. When one of my friends' friend's brother brought a programmable, the early days of gaming console, um, mm. we punch in and create a little bit of your own. I didn't realize it was programming. I didn't realize it was more of a fun thing we were doing, trying to create your own uh, games or trying to create your own sort of uh, configurations in that sense. It was not complex. It was pretty straightforward. Then subsequently again got, when I started my math uh, master's, applied math, because it's, it was applied math, I, I started with uh, Fortran. Fortran was, it's, it's a scientific language yes. at that time. <laughs> so Probably reveals our age, but yeah. I know, dinosaurs. <laughs> but, but I think that gave a um, very interesting perspective about getting the machines to do something interesting and uh, complex, computationally complex, especially with Fortran in a jiffy, right? It's very, so easy to do. And then you get a thrill out of it that you get yeah. to do. That is when you realize that you like it, you you want to be able to continue doing that. So I went on to enter computer science because of that shift, because of, I also did pattern recognition, Fourier transforms, some of that during MSc itself because okay. of it applied mathematics right so it was uh, including discrete maths and regular expressions and context-free languages gra- context-free grammar uh, context-sensitive grammars all that good stuff about turing so i already got enough exposure by my math masters itself that computer computer science is something which i want to take it up and then yes. then shifted there but after that it was of course because i was doing computer science knew you had to do formal course and operating systems and multi-threading and by the way, I was working on PDP level VAX. That again, new guys would wonder, never heard it. Uh, yeah, there were the machines of that time. Right, yeah, there were very after IBM and digit, digital digital DEC machines. Then obviously started with 1K, 32K, 64K kind of memory PCs. By the time PC had arrived and Windows early DOS machines were already in play, uh, very much. Windows 3.1 had already come out late 80s, mid-80s, I think, right? That's yes, when they released. India already started seeing this coming in very early. So we started programming there also. So quite a lot of programming I did. But I think then I joined Infosys. So Infosys hmm. was a very transformation. It's very weird. I happened to work in the education research team where I was, because of my PhD, I was also teaching. Teaching the new joinees in Infosys. Yeah. And as always, my mom is a teacher and my grandmother is a teacher. Everybody is a teacher. Teaching is the best way to learn. So you have, I mean, we recruited only IIT then you had these people who cracked the best exam in the country and then thought they had done with their education. Why the hell am I sitting in training classes again? So they really had no interest. They just wanted to get into project and go abroad or whatever they want to do in '94, '93, '94 time. But teaching them was yeah. both challenge and it just sort of raises your bar. In terms of ability to articulate, ability to explain concepts, the -hmm. fundamental set theory based on which RDBMS was built, for example. Uh, Unions, SQL, you know, join is nothing but creating a a set, uh, you know, intersections and Mm -hmm. so on. So how does that abstractions help to me? I think doing PhD also was, I feel, was very pivotal Mm -hmm. in getting abstract thinking, very solidified. So you're patterns and your ability to abstract that pattern and reapply came from my PhD onward. Subsequently, of course, teaching also necessitated that. And because I was teaching, I also got a chance in as early as 93, I was working early 94. I was already having internet connection and I was programming very early CGI programming. If you remember that early days of using at that time, pre mozilla pre-Netscape days, the Mosaic browser. Mm. Uh, and the early the uh, HTTP daemon that we used to download from uh, CERN. So, CERN's yeah. kind of HTTP mm. server and Mosaic was our tool too, pretty much. And a okay. C program. You write C code and mm-hmm. put it as a plugin to the HTTP daemon and mm-hmm. you run it, run it as a programmable web server at that time okay. to create dynamic pages. So, I then Nandan caught hold of me and said, Hey, you are already coding Internet Dynamics. So, why don't we? Trial This was uh, early 95 when we reference internet banking, experience, okay. okay, building yeah. how consumer banking would dramatically change. So, Nandan was one of those visionaries you could see, you know, that changing. And we did this and we showed it off to bankers, and bankers obviously were way, way ahead of time. And they asked, "What is the website? What is the internet?" This was when branch-based banking, not even core banking, mostly yeah. branch-based banking, right? was going on? So we, I think Infosys picked it up later. So at '99, mm. again Pinnacle picked up the mm-hmm. internet banking when the when it was okay for the society mm. to accept it. <laughs> but because I think that I think the early days of my PhD and early days of Infy teaching, I think was the fundamental shift in mm. my not. A normal programmer, I I was forcefully elevated to abstract thinking, architectural thinking, concept explanation. If you can't explain why the hell is actually happening uh, mm-hmm. in the operating system level, why is the I.O. problem? Why is there a threading happening? Mm-hmm. I couldn't teach. And if mm-hmm. I can't, then the IITN will just screw my happiness in front of me. They're all you know, <laughs> so I had to do that. I think that created a non-linear learning curve for me. Okay. And to get to an architecture thinking, then '96 in went into the subsidiary of Infosys, uh, Yantra Corporation, where we built a completely internet bank supply chain product, architected it. So you know, very rapid evolution to an architect straight away. And yeah. I didn't spend much more time in traditional coding, and I never became a manager. I don't even call myself a manager. I can't deal with project management and people management. I mentor people. I love people. I mentor people. But not the traditional project management constructs of a system integrator company, SI company. I just couldn't get around. So I was a product guy always, I think. Uh, so, so beginning and, and mm-hmm. then, then I stayed with the product company for until 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had multiple rounds of venture raising, then subsequently got acquired. When I came back from you, started in Karimula here engineering mm-hmm. uh, we had few of us who came back who expanded our engineering product engineering was all through my product experience very tiny company 40 people engineers we were actually 200 million valuation so mm-hmm. it was a very good company got uh, good acquisition 2009 I quit all that thing and joined when mm-hmm. the news came out that Dr. Manmohan Singh has invited Nandan to take it up yeah. I re- contact. I had lost contact with him so I contacted <laughs> him and told him that uh, midlife crisis or whatever you want to call, <laughs> time has come for yeah. me to, to apply my large-scale engineering, large-scale engineering and architecture construct to do something societal good. Uh, then onwards, everything else is uh, public good creation.
0: <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Because that was one question that I had as to how you got into the scale thinking in the first place. Uh, because what we notice is that when you talk about architecting a solution or building large scale solutions you definitely need this abstraction yeah but then for implementing it realizing it you have to work on all the details yeah so how do you communicate with let's say an individual contributor in your team or somebody who's trying to realize your vision
2: yeah so I think one thing I, I always do is because I come from a Entrepreneurial product company background, where we are barely running out of fund, we are raising fund, you know, trying to compete with SAPs, Oracle of the world. We were a small supply chain product company in the US. We are competing with the Sebel, all the big guys at that time. We almost mm-hmm. we had to be practical as well. So we are always mm-hmm. marrying the product agility, ability to bring product out, capabilities out, mm-hmm. while the foundation of the architecture is not diluted. Mm. So, you want now ar- because product companies, unlike projects, you don't get built for building and you don't get built for fixing bugs, yeah. right? You are a cost center. I mean, you're in the product. Yeah. So, if you can do the same thing with half the people, mm-hmm. that's even better. So, per employee revenue is even better for a product company, right? Yeah. So, we got into the idea of first unbundling and isolation that architectural yeah. constructor isolation. Mm-hmm. I always create small pieces and isolate them through a well-defined yeah. interface. And mm-hmm. then i give the developer all the things he's giving, write dirtiest code you want. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Bring the feature up. But inside okay. that isolation, inside that isolation, nobody mm-hmm. else should see it. Mm-hmm. The dirt, the dirt you're writing, nobody else should see that. Dirt. Sure. Okay. So you might be writing a let's say a payment processing component.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you are not designing it for scale you're not designed it for generalized architecture so you mm. might be hard coding stuff into it actually i don't care so actually mm. i really don't care but mm. i want the interface first of all is it a component atomic yet if not break it down okay break down the atomic pieces is like the class design with the interface okay. without the implementation. That I am very particular about. So I get my interfaces correct.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Implementation can be dirty. So I tell mm-hmm. people that quick and dirty implementation is because that's the reality of life. There is a release plan. There's a customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something has to go. Sales guys have already promised something you can do. Mm-hmm. These are realities of life. So you have to get implementation. But what I bet on is two things. My interface is solid. Mm-hmm. My automation is solid, and I come from a world of interface automation, where again, throwing people at testing was not billable in a product company. <laughs> okay, so we couldn't we couldn't go and tell customers, oh, we have hundred testers. Screw you, man! I don't care. So it's very important. So we we were we had a hundred thousand test cases in our products, completely automated. So we had entirely API driven architecture. We, we can work entirely on API and every API was automated. So mm-hmm. we were so ahead of those two bets. API, mm-hmm. the interface, mm-hmm. how to design atomic interfaces mm-hmm. and how to automate it so that you can write bad code and you can actually refactor without worrying. Okay. If, okay. You don't, if you don't have the ability to refactor, mm-hmm. so bring the ability to refactor through mm-hmm. interfacing and automation. If okay. you bring interfacing and automation, you can write dirty code. I don't care. I'll hmm. let you refactor, let a continuously refactor, where you bring scale, you bring security. You, you can't put the most advanced encryption initially. So you hmm. want to go with a quick customer table, user table. Yeah, yeah, just keep doing okay. But eventually you have to say, oh, no, user email has to be encrypted. You can't keep hmm. in the database like that these days. Mm-hmm. But no chance of asking these perfections that they want. Hmm. So refactorability was an essential thing of a product. And especially with product company, where your product is not going away from you anytime soon and <laughs> all the bugs you create are yours only. Yeah, right. Right? Uh, so everything is an overhead. More bugs yeah. means more overhead. That's all is going to happen. So we had a very good understanding of what it means to bet on interface design and automation. Only thing, if you don't know anything else from this talk, please take these two things out. Okay. <laughs> design atomic into yeah. break it down. Design atomic interface automate the hell out of it first before you
0: even write any code. Yeah, that does sound very easy when you listen to it, but then I can already see a few other gray areas that probably need to be addressed along with this. For instance, when you say architecture, modeling, or you're trying to represent it, two aspects. One is you're trying to solve a business problem. So which means that there is a certain amount of domain knowledge or domain related peculiarities, maybe the constraints, maybe it is the regulations or maybe it is the way in which the industry works, et cetera. How can one quickly grasp that and then try to build it in the model? And second, just like you mentioned for the small services, saying that once you have your interface and the contracts all defined, then you can keep refactoring and evolving. Does that happen in your mind With the architecture also. Yeah. So first point,
2: let me answer the first question. Okay. I have always believed and it's one of the, maybe one of the reasons why I could succeed uh, in the industry is also that I never was actually a techie techie. Mm -hmm. I was always a sales guy. I was always a business guy. I -hmm. could always understand what the domain aspects were and I was very keen to learn. And I would never say, you know, somebody will give me a PRD uh, product requirement and I'm only interested in some Kafka and database and all that. No, actually I said, you no, know, they are incidental. According to me, programming languages and tools were incidental and people will keep creating newer ones. Okay. Yeah. What are you trying to solve? Mm. Whose care are you taking care of? So mm. you, you have to understand the cares of the customer and Mm -hmm. understand the business scenario. So I was always in the middle of understanding what is really going on. Mm -hmm. But the art is in converting that ask. I can, Mm -hmm. I can, being in 20 plus years, 25 years in the product company, I have never seen requirements coming correctly. Never. Mm -hmm. Nobody tells you requirement correctly. Everybody tells you the elephant from their view. Little bit here, Mm -hmm. little bit there, little bit there. So Mm -hmm. our ability to not, take the requirements of a customer as is, it's important. So it means yeah. we have to apply our critical thinking and map what customer is trying to do and say, why are you doing it? And the yeah. why behind the why? And the yeah. why behind the why? I'll give you an example. One of the requirements in our product early days, we had a web search form for order. We were a supply chain management. So we were yeah. sales order. You could search sales orders and all that thing. And one of the requ- requests came to me saying, we need the ability to copy, paste, a uh, copy from the, the internet page yeah, right. because we had protected some field. So I they said, I can't copy it. It mm. was actually very easy to make it copyable from mm-hmm. that field, mm-hmm. uh, the text box copyable in HTML, but I didn't do it. I said, why are you trying to copy? Okay.
1: Mm.
2: What? Why were you doing what you're doing? No, I copy and paste it here. And we okay. had a concept called linked orders. Because I have to find the linked order. So I used to copy this order number from here and copy it there yes. and actually search it. I said, why? I'll give you the linked order link right there. I say, oh, of course. That solves. Yeah. So this is an important because by the time it came through tech support to our product management to, as a PID, the ask was this make the text box copy pasteable. And <laughs> I am wondering, that's not a requirement. That doesn't make like, yeah. it doesn't look like a customer is losing sleep over copy paste issue. So then yeah. I had to retrace and say, ask. So I think asking the right question about functionality and what is the actual business problem mm-hmm. is an important part of being an architect.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: second, never take it in the face Okay. Always ask more questions about what if this is a different product? What if it is slightly different domain? Because our product, because of our architectural, what we call generalization of the architectural construct, mm-hmm. We started with e-com retailers, mm-hmm. immediately went into logistics and mm-hmm. DHL, FedEx, everybody used worldwide, part, fourth-party logistics. We could go into adjacencies. Very easy using the same product because mm-hmm. we didn't take the requirement hard-coded and hard-coded into the architecture. So I think the business asks to a generalization of the architecture mm-hmm. is very key. The generalization comes from visualization. So that mm-hmm. if goes back to your last question. Do you visualize this? Absolutely. In fact, I can't think anything other than pictures. Okay. I actually, okay. if I can't get a simple picture in my mind, if I don't, if I can't explain again, my teaching may be helping me. I always ask the question, can I explain this in a very simple term to somebody at all, this architecture?
1: Mm-hmm. If
2: I can't explain this, I have complicated it. That's my argument. That, that beauty of that architecture comes from simplicity. Mm. All that uh, things. So we have to be able to constantly refine it. That means you have to close your eyes, imagine it, and saying that it's happening. So that requires business understanding converted to generalization of the architecture, converted to generalized interfaces, getting it right. Even Mm -hmm. if you don't get implementation, Mm -hmm. getting interfaces right is a very important aspect of it. And also being a product company we learned very quickly about the generalization and externalization technique. What it means is that I generalize architecture Mm -hmm. and make the fungibility available as configuration. So that means product can be reconfigured and rewired like building blocks, Mm -hmm. uh, like a Lego block. Mm -hmm. Uh, That because as a product company, if I didn't do it, it was not a project. We were not doing what exactly what customer asked. We were a product company. We were selling it to every retailer in the us every in the uk and logistics companies so mm-hmm. we had the same product only one product we had <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was yeah. a, i think the product experience is very different i think from project experience i see the difference between engineers mm-hmm. who worked on products thinking differently uh, think, they think long term they think uh, configurability they think evolvability product guys whereas project people have been project mode I don't see them thinking that way, because a customer asked me, some my on-site guy wrote to me this document and, said, you know, just coded it. Is it. Yeah,
0: yeah.. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah, that brings me to another you know, concept of probably systems are now evolving that way from let's say bespoke applications to saying that I'm creating a product and then people talk about platforms which are a little more flexible. But nowadays when you see all the solutions are more like ecosystems. In the sense you don't build everything. So you need to work with others. You need to have interoperability. So there are two questions there again. One is how can you foresee changes and what do you build in the architecture for that resilience? And second, while you mentioned something like encryption and things can be bolted on later. Probably some security is something that you cannot. You yeah. probably have to think it through. Yeah. And that too with increasing supply chain vulnerabilities. Now, wherever it is, particularly if you are mixing and matching components from different sources, can one handle that as an architect?
2: So I, I use this word. When I say encryption, ignore it. it didn't, I didn't mean I ignore encryption. Never design security and privacy and overall design, evolvability as a design, generalization of the objects you are desi- designing. Design it correctly. You don't have to implement it on day one. I think that subtlety is what is making you not freeze in time. Otherwise, you're always under this pressure of something you have to implement and you have to get something out in the next month and then something in the next month. But at the same time, you're talking long term. So how do you marry the long term? So my, I, I always tell my uh, developers, design for a decade, okay. implement for today. Okay. That is very key. And that balancing of designing, so that means you design the interfaces, you design security, you design privacy, but you can implement okay. some parts of it, basically on a tactical aspects of it. Okay, not this month. Okay, let me put it in the sprint next month or sprint next after that and is there a customer really going live? A lot of times when you do a product, they're not even going live for the next six months. So you have a leeway in fixing some of these as you go, instead of freezing in time. So I'm talking about implement. Design has to be for a decade. And I think it's very important to get it right. But I think you ask the question, how do you make it evolve? For example, when, we did the, the API, Aadhaar Authentication API we got in 2010 or 11, actually, 2011, I think that it published. It hardly went through change. It was so forward-looking, mm-hmm. uh, it, it had PIN, OTP, TOTP, we had FACE in there, but we never implemented FACE. We are barely implementing now by the way, uh, mm-hmm. FACE as an authentication because we had no smartphone just came in 2009, Android mm-hmm. came in 2009, we were designing the interface for forward, Okay. And then we, that then we would have an error code, a not yet implemented error code. So we have we have a that API is there but not yet implemented. But uh-huh. it was this interface didn't have to go through much change at all. Mm-hmm. And then we always find a way to make backward compatible upgrades to the interface. Okay. Knowing that an ecosystem, I think you brought everything is an ecosystem.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Everything you there is no existence of you as mm-hmm. in yourself. Hmm. You are a product company. You exist because of everybody else around you. You are a you know supply chain company. If you are a you know Flipkart or uh, anybody else, you are on one side supply side network and the demand side network. You are always in between some network, right? Yeah. Um, Even that your architecture. This is why the API based architecture, uh, which for some reason we had implemented as early as '99. We were we only wrote APIs at that time. It was very mm-hmm. interesting that we were ahead of time but it now today today i think most of the people do it knowing that you are in the ecosystem i think that api is the interface that you design it for forward looking design that means you think about could card change like upi we i don't know whether you actually have read my original upi paper where i described the idea of virtual payment address and how the vp you get today shiva upi ybl you have this codes right yeah how I designed it today I can convert a credit card debit card or any payment instrument into a virtual payment okay. attack that is why when tag came ETC came mm-hmm. your car registration number became a VPA. Okay. right you can actually okay. recharge your ET, your recharge your fastag in your car mm-hmm. by sending money to K 51MA yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah literally your car yeah. number there is no bank account in that name mm. It is a addressable payment address, right? Mm-hmm. A, res- a receptacle of a payment. How mm-hmm. can any receptacle of a payment be addressed in a mm-hmm. URN format?
1: Okay.
2: You, 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 you in a normalized format. Yeah. That's uh-huh. what I wrote in 2014. So <laughs> that was very, far, because that is what you think about it. You think about how can newer ways of doing things can get nicely into the same design. Mm-hmm. How do you generalize it? But we did implemented none of that at that time, implemented only minor part of the spec. So it's very important that implementation is where you get leeway. Design you don't get leeway. If you don't get the design, your house foundation itself is weak, that you are, you can't patch foundation. It will crumble. You know, that's what will happen.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that throws up another question. Nowadays, everybody wants to be agile. Yeah, of course. Okay. And one of the things, then don't spend a lot of time on big upfront design make failures, it is okay, keep releasing, keep evolving. So what is your perspective on that? Yeah, of course.
2: If your design takes months, then you have a problem because nobody has patience to wait for it. Frankly speaking, uh, not all design, some design might take long, uh, but not all design do take that long. But uh, I am still of the opinion that if you design correct, your coding time is dramatically slashed if you design correctly, if you're you're automated fully, then your fixing time and enhancement time and uh, refactoring time is Mm -hmm. dramatically reduced because you can confidently refactor knowing that your uh, regression suite will catch. Otherwise, you are expecting some human being to test it. You are scared of touching your own code. That's what happens (laughs) sometimes. You know, write only code only once, right? Then you start putting big if statements. if this then else and all will happen because you can't i don't know what is going on in that code <laughs> because you're, you you i think testability is what is causing this fear so i would actually argue that taking upfront design time can't be months but design time is essential absolutely mm-hmm. essential it's mm-hmm. it's a wrong thing today say get start coding and we design it later that's okay. stupid i know national scale system can happen i can tell you if you are dreaming of a national scale system, or uh, if you are dreaming of becoming Paytm or if you're dreaming of becoming Flipkart or Pay, you can't be the foundations of the design and also the DNA of the engineering matter more to me at that time Mm -hmm. Uh, because the DNA of engineering is to get good design thinking right, good interface and automation as a DNA, then we can let literally let people, so uh, unbundle, isolate, interface, automate.
0: Okay. Then you write whatever you want.
2: Also, the uh, young engineers. Whatever they taught you in college is probably all wrong. Yes. 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 They taught you how to code, how to do indentation, and they probably even scored you for indentation. A sad thing. <laughs> or, curly parenthesis missing. The teacher cut the half mark and all totally useless <laughs> now you think about interfaces think about design think yeah. about what Our interface also takes the ecosystem play because mm-hmm. interface is not only outside ecosystem
1: mm-hmm.
2: even inside your own organization you have other systems mm-hmm. so interoperable you are not, never alone mm-hmm. so and whereas manufacturing world has done this really well imagine the car guy toyota guy is not building all pieces of the puzzle by himself mm-hmm. toyota is Procuring so that large scale anything that is happening at human scale, manufacturing, building houses. You think you're building houses? The guy who built bricks and windows and yeah. you know everything is interoperable. Yeah. You can actually build so anything human scale is always interoperable. That means they all assume that mm-hmm. we can't be solving everything. We are only one part of it, and we should fit in nicely. To fit in nicely, you need to have interfaces well designed. <laughs> Yeah. Software is becoming that way these days, thankfully. It's no more an enterprise monolithic world. So, I think uh, engineers have grown to appreciate mm-hmm. this ecosystem and API thinking much more. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, they're getting the isolation and interfacing and automation right. Yeah. Okay.
0: Again, probably nostalgia. One of the classic books, you know, Mythical Man Month, and you know, those days, there was this concept of a chief programmer team. I mean, they didn't call it an architect or yeah. a tech lead yeah. and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah versus designed by democracy or designed by consensus. So for large systems, or even probably smaller systems, even within an enterprise, should there be one architect who conceives everything and then realizes it with a team, or can it be done by a committee? can never be done by a committee, I can tell you that.
2: So committee is a bad word, but doing by committee. But I think the way, actually, I have seen it happening in my experience, I can only share what worked for me. Absolutely. I don't know what is reality. Is that we always had a benevolent dictator a sort of role mm-hmm. who brought very who brought consensus among younger architects. So there are, let's say, we have five modules.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And there are five modules who are working on it. There are some young architects, mm-hmm. but there is always someone who is mm-hmm. making sure the coherency mm-hmm. and the long-term views brought in and the experience of being in that system. Being mm-hmm. architecting, customers screaming at you, something blowing up when you did a patch release, some other customers complaining now. Yeah. All those experience are brought by senior people. Mm-hmm. So it's not a bad idea. At least for me, it worked very well that some one benevolent dictator, they're mentoring, guiding, but occasionally making, if there's a conflict, resolving, saying, no, let's do it this way. It's not a voting business. I heard yeah. both sides. I heard all of you. And here is my directional uh, thing to do. Uh, I think it's required. Otherwise, you don't get the coherency coming in. But if there are completely independent modules, we have Mm -hmm. nothing to do. with Each of them can have their own team. I mean, you know that one pyramid structure has to be created. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least if there is a unified integrated product, one chief architect would help. Uh, Yeah, but that has to be not a uh, uh, one of the things, again, I think this is very important. The chief architect should not be in the line of uh, management. Oh. What it my means is that I should not, if I am the chief architect, I should not have people reporting to me.
1: Mm.
2: Actually, people who I never had people reporting to me, by the way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. In my 25 plus years. Yeah. But I had a lot of people I mentor, I have a lot of people I drive architecture with. So having an engineering management different from the architecture. Is good because then you can only mentor, you can't build those. you saying that I'll screw you on your re- performance review next year, and all right. it can't happen. No, because yeah. you're only you have to convince through intellect, here right. <laughs> to correct right. because that guy doesn't have to listen to you.
0: Uh-huh. That is a good setup, <laughs> yeah.
2: Not okay. a full democracy, but it is yeah. a mentored guided democracy. I think that would work well,
0: okay. not a pyramid management structure for sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. So far, you shared a lot of good practices. Know, that people can use. So, from your experience, do you have any horror stories <laughs> of I maybe mean, design decisions or architectural decisions that went wrong, or uh, that were invalidated when you actually went out to the field? Or? I think many. I would think many, many experience actually that way. At least uh, maybe one or two. So okay. I'm know, to, try to keep the conversation a little light. So some <laughs> of these things, you know, tell people, oh, oh I also did that.
2: Yeah, no, I think I'll tell you one of the architect- early architectural learning I had. Uh, this is in 2002. Uh, 2002, when we had Hallmark as our customer in the US for the product we were selling. And Hallmark has the biggest volumes coming in post-Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving time, mm-hmm. through Mother's Day and Valentine's. especially We were on the flower side of the Hallmark. Hallmark uh, mm-hmm. in the US had flowers and cards. Mm. Uh, So the flower side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So one of the things they had was they had a very interesting scenario where our because we were API based engine, we had incoming integration and outgoing integration. Okay. Okay. And we had our incoming integration from their website, the flower ordering website, Mm -hmm. into our order management, and then Mm. outgoing integration to their warehouses to actually keep. And okay. also to their infrastructure, like sending SMS. So at that time it was email. Mm-hmm. So we were sending emails. Mm-hmm. So we had an SMTP server configured in their production. It was not a SaaS offering, 2002, enterprise product. Then one of the design decisions we had is the flexibility. So we I wanted a lot of flexibility because we were early into the product. Mm-hmm. But flexibility backfired on us. That is the experience we had oh, when okay the we had no what we call debuggability manageability or debuggability at scale oh. what it means is that we have our production running and production is not in our control we are a small product company 40 people sitting in boston sitting developing product these guys are somewhere running their own data center their own website one day call comes mm. Or your order management, order taking API, order confirmation API is extremely slow. It is slowing down like crazy. Imagine what would that, en- what would a small engineering team sitting here? We have no access to their the production center and it's not a SaaS where today that is one of the messy things people do. People go straight into production, uh, do SSH, try to do log files. We were not allowed to do because we had no legal access to their environment. forced. Yeah. And one of the things we couldn't do anything. We just didn't know where it was. What do you mean by slow? What, mm-hmm. what is actionable when somebody says something is slow? Yes, yeah, slow. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. And we had to send our chief scientist, one of the performance chief performance scientists, a wonderful guy, Chinese guy, was brilliant in there. Sent to physically to Walmart, that company's headquarters. Go mm-hmm. sit there with them. And of course, we CEO immediately call and said, we are not going to charge you because your problem is our problem we will make sure it's not a service cost or anything we are sending you the best performance guy he'll come Debug. what was the issue it was extremely simple the call was coming from website to us we were making a call and we were making a synchronous call to an outbound interface okay. uh, that interface that system somebody had brought it down for management overnight so every evening they used to have that guy didn't know so the one thing i realized that two things you have to build in, any interface design. External, especially outbound ones. Mm-hmm. Always make it async. Mm. Okay, that means you are not holding up your thread. Otherwise, it was like Silk board. Everything was <laughs> being piled up, piled up, piled up, piled up, piled up, and all the threads were busy, and we were crashing. We didn't have any other... Uh, nothing to do with us. It was simply because that yeah. SMTP system was actually being maintained. So every window, they will do some restart, and suddenly, it ripple effect. All the way yeah. to the website. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. asynchronous design, asynchronous interface design was a fundamental. That's one I learned about very quickly. We are today. I think. Second, how do you do? How can we not send human beings to customer side? Because what will happen if more and more issues start coming? Small mm. product company, we will all we'll be in plain. We will not have yeah. anybody coding. So I built something called a traceability architecture into the system. It's not a Java traceability. We didn't do Java-based traceability. The production we can't do. Mm-hmm. We built an extremely lightweight in-memory trace at the thread level. We can turn it on, okay. and we could turn on, and it would generate small independent trace files just enough. Zip it up, and mm-hmm. with a customer consent, send it to us yeah. in our tech support. Yeah. Okay. When everything is going on. When yeah. Customer website is most peaked at afternoon or before Mother's Day. You can't say put a debugger in the system. So how do you do a lightweight tracing, lightweight debugging? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In-flight debugging Mm -hmm. was another second learning. These two patterns I had never realized before, before Mm -hmm. 2002. Design patterns. So Uh, We had to do it in 2002. Now, of course, I tell everybody, don't assume the other side is working. <laughs> you, know, you have to make sure especially yeah. with the ecosystem and networked architecture, right. you are only one piece of the puzzle and mm. you don't know due to what effect your are cost you are being slowed down. So how do you bring resilience and debugability at scale?
0: Uh, yeah. Was was important. One. Okay. Yeah, very nice. So normally, I, I have one favorite question that I ask all our guests as the last question usually. Saying that your career advice. Now, in your case, I think you've already given a lot of tips and a lot of areas that one needs to probably specialize in or even thinking, etc. Is there a quick test for someone who's either considering becoming an architect or somebody who has started as an architect? Am I a good architect? How do I find out? Or can I be a good architect? Is there anything that you would say, at least quick aptitude? The,
2: the three, I, I was telling you, right? The three things, not, none, actually four things. I'll talk about four things. One of them is action. Deep knowledge of the computer science, mm-hmm. inevitability. Mm-hmm. That is the obvious one. If you don't really understand how operating system processes work, how the mm-hmm. threading works, why the index tree in a data structure, a large scale when it becomes hundred million or insert intensive, why is it going skewed? It's not a balanced mm-hmm. tree anymore. I mean, the mm-hmm. fundamentals have to be there. Okay, you yeah. can't avoid okay. it too much. Uh, so we learned that part very well. You can't somehow show up as architect. Uh, that's fine. That's okay. That's an obvious one. The other three are actually non-technical. One, tremendous understanding and b- inquisitiveness about the business and the actual problem you are trying to solve. Huge. If you have not been a uh, question asking guy, if you're not the guy who's been asking, Questions with customers wanting to how does the hotel industry? Oh, you are in the hotel industry. or oh, you are working in Swiggy. How does it work? How does it work? How does menu get represented? How what's going on? If you are not one of those guys asking business question of what is really going on, what is the problem? Where are you seeing issues? You are not going to be a good architect. Second, the second part of it, if you are not able to do this abstract and reapply, mm-hmm. it's, somehow maybe you can test it through trying to redesign let's say you don't understand upi at all maybe you can try if you were upi architect what would you have tried and then do a comparison saying that okay. what did i get it and what did they do uh, is mm-hmm. not to do a plus and minus just to see if you are also getting the idea of abstractions correct okay the mm-hmm. second mm-hmm. part is the abstraction and the third part is the visual and communication element if you are mm-hmm. not if you have not been standing up and presenting in sales calls mm-hmm. you are one of those guys who are getting called in sales to explain concepts you are probably a natural architect okay that means you can't be an architect without having the ability to visualize it and articulate the ability to articulate in simplicity simple terms explain to people and why you're doing what you're doing you can't just say i know computer science this is my way i'm just going to do it i don't know how to explain all this shit," because customer doesn't understand tech okay Yeah, customers never understand tech. They shouldn't understand tech. So I think the idea is that so these three characteristics are very key. Deep appreciation of business care and lots of inquisitiveness. Second, abstracting power to reapply patterns. If you are seeing Mm -hmm. patterns, you should be able to correlate patterns. Okay. Mm -hmm. Third is ability to visualize and communicate. If you are one of those guys who have been getting good kudos about your presentation skills, ability to talk, maybe you're
0: good. you're good. you're Mm -hmm. good.
2: Yeah. Other than computer science being foundations. Okay. That is a good point.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot, Pramod. I think that's about all the time we have for now. But I'm sure there are enough topics that can spawn off more such conversations. Hopefully, we'll thank catch so up in the future. For me. Thank you. Yeah. So much.
1: Thanks. We thank Siddharth for the music. And Malavika for promoting the Software People Stories. If you like this
0: episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client
1: and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story,
0: contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.
1: This podcast was created on Hubhopper Studio. If you wish to start your own podcast for free, visit www.hubhopperstudio.com Hubhopper is India's leading podcast creation platform. Start your podcast with Hubhopper Studio and you get your voice heard across platforms like Spotify, Ghana, Google Podcasts, Wink Music and more. Click on the link in the episode description or visit www.hubhopperstudio.com